0: Well, if you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, one of the most famous quotes from the Chronicles of Narnia um, is from The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And actually, it's interesting as I was uh, I was listening to another sermon this morning and the pastor actually quoted this same, uh, this same little snippet Unless you know that it is very popular. But the quote comes from Mr. Beaver. And he is saying something in reference to Aslan. And he says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In the sixth book of the series, The Silver Chair, there's an exchange In chapter 2 between Jill and Aslan, that's not as well known, but it's one in which uh, Mr. Lewis communicates the same truth, but with a little added touch. Jill has uh, just had this experience, very emotional experience on the side of a cliff. And she is extremely thirsty, and so she sets out to look for water. And she comes upon a stream, but as she approaches the stream, she sees Aslan. She hasn't met him yet, but she sees him, and of course she's frightened. And so, because she's scared, Aslan begins a conversation with her. And he says, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty? Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said she. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Jill said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no such promise, said her. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. So, Lord. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. Jesus himself said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. And unfortunately today, there are many Christians and even churches, well-meaning Christians and churches, that believe that they must make God safe, or provide other streams from which to drink, rather than lead them to the living water that will quench their thirst to the point that they will never thirst again. And they do so by unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament in order to separate the God of the Old Testament who they describe as wrathful and heavy-handed and ruling heavy-handedly by the law, from the God of the New Testament who is loving and relates to us by grace. But in the end, all they're really doing is committing the historical heresy of Marcionism by creating a God in their own sinful image, who they believe to be and therefore proclaim to be both safe and good, but in reality is neither. And in our passage tonight in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer very clearly says that there isn't a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. But there is one God who is holy and gracious. He isn't safe, but He is good. And He has provided a stream from which we can and should drink. And has... And expects that we should respond appropriately. Because as the last phrase we heard as Mr. H. read, it, right, he is a consuming fire. There are three points tonight I want to cover as we look at this passage tonight at the end of 12. It's in the back of your bulletin if you want to take notes in the first The point is the holiness of God, the second is the grace of God, and the third is our response. The holiness of God, the grace of God, and our response. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, as we begin. Father, this is your eternal and infallible and inerrant word. And while the grass withers and the flower fades, it endures forever. By it in your spirit, would you challenge us tonight? Strengthen us tonight, encourage us tonight, and grant us, give us rest for our souls. Use me as your servant, as you see fit. So that's in Jesus' name and for the sake of his church, I pray. Amen. And amen. Now for those of you that haven't been with us, our passage tonight is in the context of a chapter in which the writer has compared the Christian life of faith with a... Arduous, a very long and arduous marathon. And to endure, he has said several things that we've looked at over the last few weeks. To endure, he has said that we must remember and be encouraged by all of those who have run before us, particularly those that he listed in chapter 11, those Old Testament saints that we saw have the same faith that we have and that ran the same race that we are running. And they, in fact, endured to the end And finished well, despite the fact that they hadn't received the promise. We've, We've heard that to endure we must lay aside every sin and even good things that entangle us and weigh us down and keep us from running the race as we should, that keeps us from running well. We've seen that to endure we must consider Jesus who has also run the race of faith that not only finished the race but he's perfected our faith and he stands at the finish line encouraging us and interceding for us that we might in fact run well. He is the one that enables us to run, he is the one that we run for, he is the one that we run to in the race that we are in the midst of. We've also seen that to endure, that we need to see the obstacles and those uphill stretches of our race that we encounter. We need to see those coming from a loving God who uses those things for our discipline. That means that those struggles and the trials of this Christian life He uses to teach us and to instruct us and to protect us and to prevent us from straying and to correct us when we do. We've also, we have also saw that we're to run hard. Right? Because the race is hard. We're to run tough because it's tough. And then of course last week we saw that we're to run together. We're to run for one another. We're to run with one another. We saw that we're not really to let anybody give up, to not let anyone give in, to not anyone, to not allow anyone to forsake Christ and to turn their back on Him, because He is the one who the author has painstakingly, over the course of these twelve chapters, He's described Christ as better than angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron. He's the better priest of a better priesthood we've seen that He is a better mediator of a better covenant because His sacrifice and His blood were better. And in these final 11 verses of the chapter, He says again, run the course that's been set. Run the course. Don't give up.
1: Don't give into the pressure that escalated.
0: He's, remember His original readers. He's writing them him and saying, don't give up to that external pressure that you're feeling from your friends who are still in the synagogue. Don't don't give in to that pressure that you're feeling from the Roman government to turn your back on Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't, in the word we've been using, don't apostatize. Don't leave the faith. And here he gives us another reason. He says, because God is a consuming fire. Let's look at verse 18. Let's begin with the holiness of God. The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and a darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, though it isn't actually mentioned, it's not, that the word is not used or the name is not given, we know that there is language, as we read earlier, as Aaron read from Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, as well as from Deuteronomy 4, that he's describing what took place at Mount Sinai. This is a description of Mount Sinai at the time when God gave the law to both Moses and the people of God. And it was an experience, if you allow, if you go back and read, and if you just listen to to the words that Aaron was reading from the Old Testament, you realize that it was an experience like none other. One commentator says it was an event in which the people were visibly, physically assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God. You know it was intense and terrible. It was full of dread and confusion. The Lord's presence in the midst of it, was actually obscured rather than revealed by the folk, the smoke and the fire and the darkness and the gloom. And it rendered the mountain, we heard, that it rendered the, the mountain untouchable by humans and animals alike. In other words, the Lord was unapproachable. He was unapproachable because there was a vast difference, and you remember from our study, back as far as Leviticus, you know that there was a marked difference between that which is holy and that which is unholy. There was a difference between the Lord who was holy and his creation. There was a difference between the majestic creator of the universe and his creation who had been indelibly and thoroughly corrupted by the fall through sin. And so there was this separation, and the sights and the sounds and even the smells were were profound indications that the chasm between the two, between holiness and unholiness, between God and, and His people was immense. And that there was this penalty for the unholy coming too close to the holy. To the point that even if an animal, an innocent animal, had strayed upon the ground of the mountain, that 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 animal would have to be killed from a distance so that nobody who was unholy would touch the animal. Because if they had, they themselves would have had to be killed. And so not only was this even a glimpse of God's holiness... But it was also, it served to declare that God was judge and he would severely and justly and consistently rule in regard to sin. And the context also served to accentuate that impending doom that awaited those who failed to keep the law that had been given There's a lot going on in that moment that's being communicated. And it's no wonder that the people said, no, we don't want anything to do with this. We don't want anything to do with Him. We we need someone else. He needs to speak to somebody else other than us. But notice what the author didn't say. The author didn't say, remember, he's writing to this faint-hearted and weary group, this small church. And what he doesn't say is, oh, don't worry about it. God isn't like that anymore. He doesn't say, oh, that's what happened there at Simon, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is doing. He says, what he says is, you have not come. You have not come to what may be touched. In other words, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You are not under the law. You are not, well, fear and condemnation are not your reality. Judgment and wrath aren't what you have received or what awaits you. And there's a difference in what he said and what others today, as I mentioned earlier, are, are saying in regards to creating a different God. And so the question is well, what where had they come? Where had they come? What were they under? What was their reality? What had they received? And the answer is in verse twenty two. In the grace of God. The writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. He tells them that because of their faith, they haven't come to Sinai, but they've come to Mount Zion. He says they haven't come to a physical mountain or a temporal reality, but they've come to a spiritual mountain and a heavenly and eternal reality. They've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. They've come to the city of God. And we've heard about the city of God Back, back in chapter eleven, but it was what what Abraham was looking forward to. It was a place, and so we know when we when we remember chapter eleven and we read here, we know that it was a place where they will eventually go. But it was also a place that was where, where they had already arrived by faith. It was future and invisible, but by faith it was present and seen. In Paul's words, it was a place in which they had already been seated in Christ. It was theirs. It was where their citizenship, not where it would be, it is where it would be, but it is where it is now. They were citizens of the kingdom. It was was the dwelling place of God and they were already there in his presence. And it would be some place that they would be in the future. It was a place in which they would find but already had rest. It was that already and not yet tension that we've been talking about. And you heard, I know you heard the vast difference in the description between the two mountains. Mount Zion is where they come into the presence of more angels than can be counted, and those angels are celebrating with joy in the presence of the Lord, worshiping Him. Mount Zion is where they come into the presence of the Catholic or universal and apostolic church made up of those from every tribe, nation, and tongue, both past. And present whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life prior to the foundation of the world. It's Mount Zion where they come into the presence of God Himself, who is a Judge. It's the same God, and they come into His presence. And remember, from chapter four, right? He is someone. He is a God. before whom no one can hide. We, we cannot hide. We're all, the, the words of the author, we're all naked and exposed in his sight. And he is the one to whom we must give an account. Right? But they don't come, right? The author says they don't come in fear and dread or gloom. They draw near confidently and boldly because of the mediator, Jesus Christ. In Mount Zion, is Mount Zion where they come into the presence of those saints of the Old Testament that we read about in chapter 11, right? Those saints who had not been perfected until Christ finished His work on the cross. They finished well, they endured to the end. But they hadn't received the promise. And so their salvation was ultimately perfected as Christ finished His work. It's Mount Zion where they came into the presence of Jesus. The mediator. The better mediator of a better covenant. A better covenant. He was better than Moses. And the new covenant was better than the covenant at Mount Sinai. And that mediator and covenant. Both Christ and the new covenant. Allow us to draw near. Again, confidently and boldly as recipients of mercy because of His grace. And the writer says that Mount Zion is where they come to the sprinkled blood of Christ. Is blood that speaks of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and atonement and peace. And it speaks better than Abel's blood that speaks of vengeance and judgment. encouragement, again, is not, don't worry, God isn't like that anymore. His encouragement is not, here's the God of the Old Testament, here's the God of the New Testament. He says, no, you have not come to what may be touched. You have come not to Mount Sinai, but you've come to Mount Zion. He says, you, you are not you are not under all. You're under grace. Fear and condemnation aren't your reality, your reality is commendation. Commendation and confidence. He says judgment and wrath aren't what you have received or what awaits you. What, what awaits you and what you have received is forgiveness and mercy. And he says God is not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What has changed, what he's saying, what has changed is their status and their position. He's telling them that they're no longer enemies of the Lord. He's telling them them that they are sons and daughters because they've turned to Christ in faith. And they're hiding in him. They're hiding behind him as As their mediator whose blood has washed away their sins. Washed them as white as snow. They've been declared holy and they're able to boldly approach the throne of grace. They've been declared clean because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And that leads to our response. And I say, my response, because the same is true for you and for me as those who have turned to faith in Christ. And I'm looking to Him as our mediator. He says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, yes, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. With this contrast between Sinai and Zion being so stark, and with the pronouncement of what is theirs in Christ, the author rightfully says, don't do what the Israelites did Don't do what they did. May they be an example for you. Don't refuse to listen to Him. Don't reject Him. Don't turn your backs on Christ and forsake Him. Don't go your own way. Think of all of the admonitions that we've heard throughout this letter. Don't go your own way. Don't go astray. Don't harden your hearts. Don't drift. Don't fail to enter into His rest. Why? Because the penalty is severe. He says that the Israelites didn't escape due to their rejection of God and their hard hardness toward the law. How much more and how much greater will the punishment be for those who reject Christ and grow hard hearted toward the gospel? Here's this very vivid picture of the judgment to come. He says at Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. This was well beyond anything we experience here due to fracking. But according to Haggai 2 2.6, there's a greater shaking. He says, "For thus says the Lord of hosts: Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. Just as God spoke, and everything came into existence out of nothing at all. There will come a day when He will speak again, and everything that is has been that is now imperfect due to sin will return to nothing." Which cannot be shaken is going to last or remain. And of course, he's talking about the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that's unshakable. It's that kingdom that believers like you and like me and like his original readers have received. Again, by turning to Christ in faith, Christ is going to come again. He's going to judge the living and the dead as we repeat every. Sunday, and the old is going to pass away, and the new is going to come. And in Peter's words, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And of course, as we've read a few times since we've been in this wonderful letter In Revelation 21, John says a new heaven and a new earth will be established in its place. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. We should be grateful. He says, you should be grateful. We should be grateful. Gratitude should be a hallmark of our life as believers in the Lord Jesus. Because our citizenship is in in an eternal and unshakable kingdom that we receive by grace through faith. not only should our gratitude motivate our obedience, but it should also motivate our worship. We enter this place to worship out of gratitude for what Christ has done. The writer says, not only should you not reject Him or His word, but you should honor Him in acceptable worship, acceptable worship that that comes from a heart of reverence and awe for who He is. Is he is a God who is a consuming fire, not was a consuming fire, he remains a consuming fire. He is altogether other, pure, and good. So what are our takeaways? I usually give you two or three I'm going to give you six I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on each one and I hope I don't take any of yours as you talk about them in a small group but there are things that I I hope that we will consider that we'll reflect on that we'll ruminate on along this passage over the course of this next week first let us Strive to keep the Old Testament hitched to the New Testament. Let's, let's put forth the effort to keep it that way. He is, not was, a consuming fire. And the reality is that our understanding and appreciation of the grace and love and mercy and compassion of God is directly proportionate to our understanding of His holiness, righteousness, and wrath. And what I mean by that is that we cannot fully appreciate what we have been saved to unless we understand what we have been saved from. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that we have been saved from, God has saved us from himself. He saved us from himself, by himself, for himself, to himself. To thank God for our salvation in Him. Second, let's strive not to turn back to sin. We've been saved by grace through faith, and this, not of ourselves, is a gift from God. So let's do all we can and not fall, fall prey to the temptation to fall back or to revert back into our law abiding days in which in which we reduced spirituality down to a subjective man-made list of manageable do's and don'ts that not only put ourselves in the position of judge but also spoke of our belief In the unnecessary and insufficient work of Christ. That we've come to Zion. Not Simon. And we're to live by faith. Trusting not in ourselves. But trusting in Christ. Who is our one and only mediator. Apart from whom we have no hope of salvation. And He set us free. He set us free. Three. Let's strive to obey the Lord. Again, let's not follow the way of the Israelites. Let's let's not refuse Him or His word. His law is holy and righteous and good. And we have been justified. And we've been set free from the curse of the law. And our hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh. The spirit now indwells us. And we are being, right now in the words of the Shorter Catechism, renewed in, in in the whole man. After the image of God. And we have been enabled to more and more die to our sin and live under righteousness. To call to obedience. So may we strive to live worthy of the calling that we have as sons and daughters of the King. Fourthly, let's strive to see one another and ourselves as the kingdom citizens that we are. We all have this tendency, all of us, everyone in this room has a tendency to succumb to feelings of impatience and frustration and disappointment with one another and ourselves because we're all sinful, we're all selfish, we're all self-centered. And not only do others wear us out, but we wear our own selves out. Because we... We continue to have this ongoing struggle, this inability to lay aside those things that so easily entangle us. And we want to throw up our hands at others and at ourselves. But we need to remember, as we look around this room, that we are all citizens of an unshakable kingdom. And in the words of one commentator, we need to remember that we, all of us, are not just destined for improvement, but we're destined for glory. That is is where we are headed, and we need to see each other as having been seated in those heavenly places in Christ. And we need to, remember that we're more than forgiven. We've been perfected. We're now saints. And if God sees us that way in Christ, then brothers and sisters, we ought to see one another in that same light, in that same way. And we need to see ourselves in that same way. And I believe if we do, it will change. It'll affect how we relate to one another. And Let's strive to make the best use of our time and invest in that which will last. We must be wise with our time and our resources and our energy when it comes to our involvement in the culture around us. I'm going to say we are not called to redeem the culture, that's not our call. We are called to be involved as good citizens of our community, and we are to be involved in, in seeking the welfare of our neighbor. But we are kingdom citizens, and right now we are strangers and soldiers and exiles who are looking forward to and awaiting for our eternal residence in the New Jerusalem, in the city of God. And when the shaking occurs, when that grand and final shaking occurs, in Paul's words, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's worth will become manifest. For the day will disclose. Lost my place. The, the, play, uh, the day will it, th- disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You and I, we need to be discerning and involve ourselves in those things that will last. And then finally... Let us continue to strive to offer acceptable worship to God. Our goal is not to offer great worship. Our goal is not to offer meaningful worship. Our goal is not to offer powerful worship. Our goal is to offer acceptable worship. And the reason is because something happens here in this place when we gather that does not happen in any other situation. We gather at Mount Zion. And we are to approach in reverence and awe because we enter into the presence of an almighty God who is a judge and he is just and he is also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And we should always approach in reverence and all, but also in joyful celebration for what he has done for us because we also gather and we join in a festival festival gathering of angels when we come into this place together. When we come into this place we join a gathering again of the universal Apostolic church of those from every tribe, nation and tongue both past and present. When we come into this place, we join those Old Testament Saints, When we come into this place, we come into the presence of our mediator, through whose blood has washed us clean and allowed us to enter. We can boldly. We confidently approach the throne of grace, where we can ascribe worth to a holy God through our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, because He is our God, and we are His people. May it always be so. Let's go the Lord in prayer.